This is episode 69. The true strength of our office is in the partnerships. The role the Office of Access and Functional Needs plays during a disaster. Our partners play critical roles in every facet of response and recovery, and that includes the AFN community. I mean, it was like you gave them the info and boom, that water got to the end of the row right away. We look at what Cal OES faced during some of the state's most recent emergencies through the AFN lens. Do you have what you need to maintain your your independence and your health in a way that also allowed you to maintain your dignity? California's disaster plan includes AFN from the design stage through implementation. The thing that we really have going for us in California, kind of this thing where it cuts both ways, we have a lot of disasters. We sit down with Vance Taylor, who is the chief of the Office of Access and Functional Needs at the Governor's Office of Emergency Services, Cal OES, right now. Yes, Vance Taylor, welcome back to the jungle here at Cal OES. Good to be back. It's great to have you. Listen, a lot has transpired since the last time we spoke. And uh, I kind of wanted to get your, your, your feelings on what has sort of happened over the last... Uh, really, I think over the last few months, really looking back at my list here, I, I, I really was curious about how you were involved with the last several uh, activations that we've had, most notably uh, because of the recent um, anniversary of the campfire, as well as uh, going back to just October, the PSPS, Public Safety Power Shutoff. Boy, those PSPS, know. you know. Uh, and of course, Ridgecrest and Guerneville flooding back in February. So I'm curious as to really what what involvement you had. I know I see you in the state operations center all the time. Every time that we're activated, uh, you're you're heavily involved in what's going on. Let's start with the campfire. The first thing that you had to tackle when the campfire broke out and then quickly ended, but it's the recovery that's taking forever. What was it that uh, was most concerning for you? What was the first thing that you stepped up to handle? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The uh, the campfire, I think part of what made that fire different was how fast it went, right? It was just moving so quickly. And the stat that we always hear, of course, is that at its peak, mm-hmm. it was consuming about 80 football fields a minute. Incredible. And so being able to do outreach was critical because people didn't know what was happening. And communication is one of those things where you want to take as many bites at the apple as you can. So they had code red. Okay, fine. There's you know, emergency alert systems. That's great. But you, know, you also just want telephone calls. You want neighbors telling neighbors. You want as many different emails, texts, or other communication methods to go through. And so... For us, we relied on our partners, right? I always say that the the true strength of our office is in the partnerships. And so we worked with our partners in the, the area agency uh, on aging. We worked with our partners in the California Foundation for Independent Living. We work with our partners at the State Council of Developmental Disabilities, uh, resource centers, um, all of these community-based organizations, we reached out to them right away. Mm-hmm. And they were forced multipliers. Mm. I mean, it was like you gave them the info and then, boom, that water got to the end of the row 
right away. Whereas, you know, we tend to think that emergency managers uh, at the state or the local level have this comprehensive list that we can just go to and make sure people get info. And the reality is uh, most people living independently in the community who have a disability or an accident or functional need, that we don't have their name or their, their, their phone number. And why is that? Personal I email mean, is address. That, is that just uh, just the, the day in which we live or is that something that could be changed? You know, data has always been an issue. Um, and so thank heavens for our partners because they provide programs and services and support for those individuals. And so they know who they are. Good. Right. They've got all that info. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to reach out to them. That's right. That's right. Right. We have to give them that life-saving info and then they pass it along. But I always tell people, you know, the partnerships that we've formed are so essential because you, you, you have to have it on the front end. Right. If the fire breaks out and then I think, oh, well, gee, who could we maybe partner up with on this? It's too late. The fire's right. moving too fast. Yeah. Everybody's got their own thing, their own stresses, their own focus at that point in time. That's yeah. not the time to introduce yourself. That's right. And that's uh, like with these you know, towns and cities and the counties, all the jurisdictions. We, we always say when you're doing your planning, have your community at the table with you because that's when you're going to get to know each other, right? It's not just that they're going to provide you with great input on your plan and that you're going to end up with a better product. It's that relationship and that trust so that when something does go wrong, you know exactly who to call. And they pick up because they know your name and it's on the call ID. Right. And they, they there's that trust there. So the campfire explodes. You're immediately uh, reaching out to your partners, your local partners in Butte County, I would assume. Yeah, we were fortunate to have some good partners in uh, Butte, but also we've got partners that have resources statewide. Mm. And so once you started moving into, hey, where do we get accessible transportation resources? Right, boom, they step up. Mm. And especially once you moved into sheltering, we had so many people at shelters, and the overwhelming majority of them were older adults and individuals with disabilities. And so having the capacity to do a cot-by-cot -cot check to identify unmet needs, there were, there were simply more individuals in the shelters than local government had individuals to check on those people. Wow. For those people who don't understand, I mean, they've probably heard and seen it by now, but... The, the town of Paradise is described as a retirement community or those folks who don't really want to, you know, live the, the typical suburban life where they're, you know, on top of each other in the cookie cutter home. So there are these individual homes that are spread out all over the place with a lot of foliage and trees in between each one. But there are a lot of aging community members out there. And yeah. so I would imagine that you you had your hands full probably with the campfire more than more so than many of the recent incidents yeah. that we've had. Yeah, well, what you look, if you look at the state stats on the percentage of older adults in our community, that particular community was almost three times as high. Wow. If you look at the state stats on percentage of individuals with a disability, that community was double. Double. The state average. Wow. And so that's, of course, who ended up at the shelters. What was your challenge then? Obviously many, but what were some of the initial challenges besides 
you know, getting that initial information out to those folks using your force multipliers. What were those next challenges? What What do you remember off the top of your head from a year ago? So I remember getting out to the shelters and it was so dark, right? Because there's so much smoke mm. and ash. And you've got people who have a lot of uh, respiratory related challenges. And so it's this ever moving chaotic piece of trying to meet your physical needs in terms of health while meeting your physical needs at a shelter in terms of access and then all the programmatic needs, right? So at the same time that people were looking, where do I go for safety? We were looking at making sure that we could receive them, that they'd have accessible cots, that they would have whatever dietary considerations met that they had, that we would be able to provide them with durable medical equipment. And our partners, I mean, gosh, you know, California Foundation for Independent Living Centers came through with walkers, canes, wheelchairs. I mean, starting that day. Amazing. This stuff started coming in. And then from there, doing the day-to-day, are you physically okay? Do you have what you need to maintain your, your independence and your health? In, in a way that also allowed you to maintain your dignity. And then once FEMA rolled in, it was it was doing that connection of, let's get you registered, which, you know, you can only imagine the physical and emotional stress people were under. And when you take away somebody's support network, it becomes that much more of a dire situation. And so to be there to kind of hold their hand through that process of registering and trying to figure out next steps, you're, you're not going to go back home, right? This wasn't like most fires where we're going to wait and the fire gets under control. The majority of people can go back. We knew there was nothing to go back to. And so we started working on recovery at the same time that they were doing response and saying things to FEMA like, when you get mobile housing units, you guys are going to plan for about you know five or so percent of them to be accessible. Mm-hmm. We need you to bump it to twenty percent. Wow, right? And and knowing that really early on is what has allowed that need to be addressed and met now. And, and of course, it takes a long time. It does. It does. It doesn't happen overnight. So when you're talking about uh, accessibility, you're talking about wheelchair ramps. Yeah. Uh, what else are you? Is there anything else that? Um... Yeah. So it's it's everything from making sure that you have physical access to the mobile housing unit, and then inside, right, showers, toilets, table height, the you know, shelves, all of it, uh, all the way to things like making sure that there's public transit mm-hmm. that's close to those units, right? Because otherwise, you end up in a place where hey, it's great, I can get around in here. I can't get to my job, Mm -hmm. right? I can't make it to the doctor's appointment. And so people end up stranded and isolated. So these issues are compounding themselves one after the other after the other. That's right. And then there's always this gap between when we can get acute case management uh, kicked in on the federal side and and where we are right now, right? So, So between where we... Uh, where we start, there's always a delay, right? You got to get your presidential declaration and then all this process goes through. In the meantime, people need that acute case management right away. And so it's, you know, we worked with American Red Cross, 
we worked with the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies. We worked with uh, all kinds of these wonderful entities, these partners and organizations that came to the table. And I will say the thing that we really have going for us in California, kind of this thing where it cuts both ways, we have a lot of disasters, hmm. right? I mean, think about how many disasters we've had. Right. And I've been here four years, and I think we've had like 15 of the 20 worst disasters in that window. Right. So we get good at them. So we get good, and, and mm-hmm. we get to know people and organizations, and we kind of, for us, it becomes a regular thing to have this innovative approach to helping folks that if you look outside of our state, just doesn't exist. Right. And so we found all these people from FEMA that would come in and people that would come in through uh, EMAC requests that all want to come to California so that they can learn our model. Yes. Right? We had somebody come in from Oregon and now they have just spearheaded this in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, Washington State, other states, uh, Alaska's looking at some things. And, and so we're starting to see this as sort of a blueprint uh, for others to follow, which is great. But, you know, we've, we've had to, we've gotten good because we've had to go through it so many times. Yeah, that's, like you said, that's the downside. It's a double-edged sword. You know, um, it, there's that old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. And in a way, that's kind of what this is for California. Yeah. Uh, and then it necessitates with all these disasters and the wide variety of them and the range of aggressiveness of each of these disasters, it does force California and OES and others to really think differently and uh, more creatively about how to handle not only the nuts and bolts of just fighting a fire, but then what do you do afterward, especially with AFN. We'll continue our chat with Vance Taylor, Chief of the Office of Access and Functional Needs here at Cal OES. On the way, their involvement in a variety of emergencies, from earthquakes to wildfires to prolonged power outages. So this isn't like your typical, hey, it's out for a couple hours, three, five, seven days, and no power, and suddenly, hey, my respirator, it's not working. My oxygen concentrator, it's not working. My wheelchair has no battery. We have individuals who are living independently, but it's it's sort of this house of cards situation, right, where you take away the pillar of power, electrical power, and it all falls down. Vance's job is to remind responders to consider all human challenges when responding, as well as work with AFN communities before disaster strikes. We all have a different capacity or capability to prepare, right? Your ability to prepare and my ability to prepare are gonna differ. And so what we need to look at is empowering everybody to be able to do their own part to the best and most of their ability, regardless of of physical ability or financial capacity. And then after that, we have to be able to plan for the delta, right, between what exists today and what we know we're going to need tomorrow. The earthquakes that struck Ridgecrest in July 2019 took a little extra effort. Damage looked minimal on the surface, but... That was a big thing for us, was to remind people that just because homes didn't go down, that you still had a lot of unmet needs. Back to our conversation with Vance Taylor. Campfire, obviously a unique situation in the sense that, like you said, uh, bump it up from 5% to 20% and the number of AFN folks who were affected by the fire uh, significantly greater than the average. Recently, we've been, just as 
recent as last month and maybe even going into November, depending on what the weather does, the PSPS. How did that uh, yes. challenge AFN? You know, it's interesting, right? So we, you know, we get the concept that, okay, so there's high wind and heat and low humidity, and this is a recipe for fires. And something's going to knock them into a pole and there's going to be a spark and that's a bad thing. And I think we all appreciate that. What was difficult about BSPS was the way it got rolled out, right? It, the IOUs essentially said, hey, there's this program and we're going to give you some notice and then we're going to shut your power off. And they hadn't thought through all of the implications of what a prolonged power outage would mean for the communities that they served. We're talking days here, days upon days. Yeah, right. So this isn't like your typical, hey, it's out for a couple hours. Yeah. Uh, you know, three, five, seven days and no power. And suddenly, hey, my respirator, it's not working. My oxygen concentrator, it's not working. My wheelchair has no battery. We have individuals who are living independently, but it's it's sort of this house of cards situation, right? Where you take away the pillar of power, electrical power, and it all falls down. Right. And so you've got people who are fine on day one and maybe day two even. And then after that, they have trouble getting out of their apartments. And now they have no phone to call for help. They have no way to email. They have no way to get out there and, and say, my food's bad. My medicine is no longer cool. I'm overheated. Or what we ended up with at the, at the last PSPS event, remember the weather dropped, mm -hmm. and it was like 30 degrees all night, mm -hmm. right? So the only way that we could, at that point, check on people was that, that old-fashioned knock on the door, right? It was, it was friends and family and neighbors helping neighbors. And so a lot of it came down to when we were three, four, five days in, how do we leverage mechanisms like CERT teams or AmeriCorps, right? These these volunteers that are trained to go neighborhood by neighborhood during disasters, because it's really at that at that level now. There's just so many people that need wellness checks. Well, and this went on, this was really for all intents and purposes, all of Northern California and a good portion of Southern California. You're talking yeah. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. I mean, we were at one point, it was like 2 million people. And you have to figure that according to the CDC, 20% of every every population has a disability. Access and functional needs are going to compound that. And so it's like I said, the utilities didn't quite see all the way through on this one, right? And so we've been meeting for months uh, in advance of these events, trying to inform them about these issues, things that they didn't, you just don't know what you don't know. And one of the things that we did was really helpful. We brought uh, reps from all three IOUs. It was PG&E, SDG&E, and Edison. And we brought them in a room with I was like 15 different statewide AFN-specific community-based organizations. And they outlined, these are the issues that our folks are going to have. Mm. And these are the things that we can help you with, right? We can help you build out your medical baseline program. We can help further your notification when there's an event. We can help doing X, Y, and Z. 
and and they really stepped up and said it's a partnership, right? It's not just that the utility should do everything. We want a further personal preparedness, and and we want to do it in partnership. So they were receptive. Absolutely, and 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 one of the real highlights that's come out, and you were talking about innovative things that California does, just necessity, right? We were able to broker a relationship that's Calaways did between PG&E and this organization of independent living centers, uh, CFILC. And they've put together a, a draft agreement where PG&E is going to give them $5 million and CFILC will administer this fund and it will enable individuals to rely on power for life-sustaining medical devices to fund everything from uh, the cost of a hotel if they have to evacuate to the transportation costs associated with that evacuation, hmm. extra hours for a care attendant, uh, money for refrigeration units, yeah. backup storage, uh, power storage, uh, emergency preparedness kits. You know, it's it's not prescriptive. It, it understands the program allows for the fact that what you might need could differ from what I need but that both those needs are valid. Mm -hmm. And so it's $5 million. And then these PSPS events came up before that agreement got signed. Uh -huh. And so PG&E said, stepping outside of that agreement, we're going to buy a bunch of backup batteries and we're going we're gonna to distribute them uh, through the independent living centers for community members who need them the most. And then they said, and then here's a check card. Wow. Cover people's transportation, cover their their hotel, you know, do the best you can for people. What happened was that came through at literally the 11th hour. Crazy. And so it didn't get rolled out in the same strategic, methodical approach with which you would expect to see. Yeah, but that was just because of the the suddenness of That's the That's right. Yeah. But it was like, here's a bag of money, go put it out. And yeah. I was like, oh, man, yeah. got to ramp up, right? So. Mm -hmm. But they were, but but they were able to do some really incredible things. They're they're dynamic, and so you know we appreciate what PG&E provided in terms of resources. We absolutely appreciate what our partners have done with those resources. Look forward to that contract getting signed. And and I think moving forward, it'll be a uh, a statewide program that all of the IOUs will pay into. Mm-hmm. So that everybody in every service territory can be uh, assisted. Absolutely. Again, going back to this uh, necessity and the mother of invention, do you see then this as the next time that the PSPS happens, and hopefully the contract will have been signed by then, that the, the rollout of this plan uh, will go a lot more smoothly? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think what you'll see... Is the preparedness needle is gonna is gonna move dramatically, and and I see this as an opportunity, right? Because the more prepared you are for a PSPS event, the better prepared you are for a regular power event, absolutely, or a fire or any other emergency or disaster situation. A PSPS event should be uh, contained. A plan for that should be contained within your overall plan. That's right. Um, and this PSPS event, you know, as emergency managers, we always tell people, 
hey, look, if it really hits the fan, you got to be ready to be on your own for 36 hours, right? It's an uncomfortable truth. But AFN, how, how does someone with AFN, how are they supposed to do that? Well, so that's the, that's the thing, right? As you hear sometimes, well, personal preparedness. And, and here's the thing, Sean. We all have a different capacity or capability to prepare, right? Your ability to prepare and my ability to prepare are going to differ. And so what we need to look at is empowering everybody to be able to do their own part to the best and most of their ability, regardless of, of physical ability or financial capacity. And then after that, we have to be able to plan for the delta, right, between what exists today and what we know we're going to need tomorrow. It's important for the AFN community to be independent as much as possible. But during times of crisis and during times of disasters, you don't want to rely on your um, being completely independent. This is where you need to have people involved in your plan. You need to have people involved in uh, you know, people you can call, people who can help you out, people who can get you to safety. Yeah, it's, it's a support network, right? I mean, you know, I use myself as an example. Uh, I'm a pretty independent guy, but, you know, I don't drive, right? So if I'm going to evacuate my home, uh, I'm going to need somebody that can drive me. So my personal evacuation plan has four or five people in it. You know, my wife, my, my mom, my neighbor across the street, friend from church, colleague at work. These are people that I've, I've personally spoken with, and they're, they're on my go team. Right. So I can't expect that any one of those people is going to be available at any moment's notice. But it's reasonable that one of those five is going to be available to assist me. And I would assume that the AFN community does accentuate the point of having a go team yeah yeah and and so that's that's a big push as well as this recognition or acknowledgement that there are some people that don't have a support network and so again that's that's part of the challenge is how do we during a blue sky day help individuals set up a support network and so when we talk about whole community which we use that term i think so much we don't even think about what it means anymore sometimes it's just kind of out there, we're literally seeing with things like PSPS that it is the whole community. It's individuals, it's government, it's private sector, it's yeah, it's it's churches, it's, it's, it's neighbor hel helping neighbor. It's, Absolutely, you know, I can't tell you how many people that uh, in my neighborhood, you know, when you see each other walking their dogs around in the neighborhood, and so many of them are are friendly and wave and say hello, but there are others who won't even look up. They won't even look at you. And I don't know why that is. That's just who they are, I suppose. But those are the people to me that uh, that I would worry about the most in in those rural communities or really, quite frankly, any community. If, if they're not if they don't have that support network, they don't yeah. have family, if they don't have friends that they rely on, they're completely independent. They could be the ones that need the help the most. Who knows? Well, it's one of those things of like, hey, we haven't seen Vance in a few days, right? And we haven't had power, so maybe maybe we go check on the guy. Yeah. Right? I would hope that, that my neighbors would do that. but And I think sometimes, you know, look, we all want the scenario where we move into a neighborhood and, hey, the doorbell rings and our neighbors are there with apple pie. Mm. Right? Welcome to the neighborhood. That's great. And I've had that happen. More often than not, 
we're the ones that have to bake cookies mm. and make the rounds to introduce ourselves. Right. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. but we got to be more proactive about it. And that's just kind of where we are now. Right. Are there any apps that AFN likes to push or rely on for assistance in that regard? Technology is used in virtually every aspect of emergency management. We'll get the answer to that in just a moment. On the way, the earthquakes that struck Ridgecrest in July 2019 took a little extra effort by Vance and his team. Damage looked minimal on the surface, but the real effects were quickly becoming apparent. That was a big thing for us, was to remind people that just because homes didn't go down, that you still had a lot of unmet needs. Back to our chat with Vance Taylor. And what about that technology? Are there any apps that AFN likes to push or rely on for assistance in that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I always tell people, like, look to your your local resources, right? But um, Nextdoor's been great. Hmm, I wondered. You know, Nextdoor has been really good about that. Hmm. And so sometimes you've got early adopters, right? People that have apps and smartphones and really savvy. But other times maybe you've got older adults that are not, uh, you know, known for, for being early adopters. Yeah. Uh, and so we got to help them out. Part of it, like I, I do things where, uh, you know, I'll sign up for alerts in my mom's neighborhood, right? Just because yeah. it's a little bit know. older, you know? And, yeah. Sometimes we gotta look after mom. Yeah. So so again, it's it it's not stuff that costs a lot of money. Yeah. But it does take some time. It does take some thought. A little bit of effort. And, and a little bit of effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm curious too uh, about uh, Ridgecrest, the earthquake back in July of this year. What were some of the significant challenges that uh, the AFN community and emergency managers such as yourself? had to deal with for Ridgecrest. So Ridgecrest was interesting because, it, I mean, first off, look, if you ever were going to have a major earthquake, that's where you want it. Yeah, right? in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot out there. Um, but you had this really scary situation for people where, you know, they, there were a lot of aftershocks. You have the 6.0 or 6.4 or whatever it was, earthquake that turns out to be the foreshock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And so we had people that wouldn't, Go in their homes, right? They didn't want to be indoors. They were afraid another big one was going to hit. That's right. Mm. That's right. And so it was like, okay, well, then how do we provide? Yeah, where do you go? That's right. <laughs> and so you've got a sheltering issue. And then you had a water issue. So you look at water, and it's not just for, for cooking and obviously sanitation, but it was hot. Yes, it was. And so many people that rely on Swamp coolers. Right. Which require water. And it's not like you could just go pick up a, I mean, water's heavy. You know, it's, it, you got to be able to get out there. And, well, and they had infrastructure problems. So that they're, yeah, pipes so, broke. Yeah. So that was a, an interesting dynamic. And again, what it came down to was, and, and if you're a fan of Sam's, by the way, you got to love this, right? That, that it came down to at the local level, doing that, your know, neighbors up and neighbors, but but to canvas and, and to do the assessments and identify the needs, and then run it up the run it up the chain. Hmm. Um, but but that was a big thing for us, was to remind people that just because homes didn't go down, that you still had a lot of unmet needs, and so. It was about 
communication and awareness. And ultimately, we did provide, really through, again, our partners, um, a lot of resources to those folks, and whether that was water or some means for cooling or accessibility at coolant centers or shelters. So you have to stay on top of all of these uh, logistical concerns, all the, the people who are making the effort to respond and aid you have to keep reminding them and keep facilitating the AFN need. Yeah, we um, we find that more and more it's becoming a part of the culture. I mean, that's been my vision since I came here. Yeah, you're doing your job. It's you're you're, you're there in front of people, telling them, reminding them, hey, AFN, come on. Yeah, and and you know the really great thing about it is you you, you see it in in Ridgecrest. You we're talking about paradise. As you go from disaster to disaster. And you start with a certain perspective, and then that perspective gets widened, right? Because, again, everybody comes at things from their own perspective, but most emergency managers don't have the lived experience of an access and functional need. Right. But once they see it, and they see the impact of the work that they do, and they see the consequence of not integrating for access and functional needs, right, all these things give them a broader perspective. You don't want to get behind the eight ball on that. That's right. And 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 the beautiful thing about it is they then feel empowered to do more things for people. And it's it's like you flip on this light switch that once it's on, you can't turn it off. And so now, you know, if heaven forbid something happens there again, I'll be there because, you know, that's what we do. But but with or without me, it's not it's not dependent on, you know, any one individual. It's now a level of awareness an integration internally within just what, what everyone does in the culture, hmm. which is great. Um, and our partners are the ones in the local, uh, at the local level that are doing it every day. Every day. Every day. And they're, you know, partners. Absolutely. That's what it takes. Partnership. That's right. All disasters start local. All disasters should include a plan for AFN. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, what we tell people over and over and over, and of course we we practice what we preach, is you got to have people around the table. You can't plan for people, right? You need to plan with people. And it, when people say, oh, California leads the, the nation in inclusive planning, it's not because any one individual is a, a smart person. It's because of our ability to recognize the value of partnership. And so that's why when we did things like we came out with the nation's first integrated active shooter awareness guidance. And we had stakeholders around the table who represented all types of uh, disability and access and functional need. And, and their lived experience helped us develop a better document that now has helped people nationwide. It's just so much of what we do. It's what we preach mm -hmm. and teach, evangelize and hope that others will do at the local level and it's what we do at the state level. And then we work it from the top down. They work from the bottom up. Yeah. And together we get there. And like you said, it's becoming part of the culture. And I think it's because of the efforts of folks like you who are making it part of the culture. It's important. And moving forward, it can only get better. So, again, uh, make sure, folks, that you have your plan. And keep in mind those folks who may have access and functional needs. Uh, whether they're friends, family, or maybe a neighbor that you don't speak to very often who won't look you in the eye when they walk their dog, you know, down your sidewalk or something. <laughs> but everybody has a need. You just got to know what it is and um, keep them in mind. 
All right, Vance Taylor, thanks. I appreciate it, and uh, maybe we'll see you in another year. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, bud. My thanks again to Vance Taylor for sitting down with me yet again. In case you missed his last appearance, check out the podcast titled Taylor Made to Advocate for People with Access and Functional Needs. It's episode 23. We'll have a link to it in the notes section of this podcast. We'll also have links to some of the community-based organizations mentioned in this episode. Just head to oesnews.com, click on the podcast tab, and then this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to All Hazards wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For everyone here at Cal OES, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.